Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitor. So, for more than 30 years, Japan has been the stock market that crashed but didn't recover. Now, however, Japanese stocks are having a moment in the sun. The country's main stock indices are trading at highs that haven't been seen since 1990 when its infamous asset bubble of the late 1980s was deflating. So far this year, the blue-chip Nikkei 225 index is up 17%, which is far more than the S&P 500 or Europe's stocks 600 benchmark. And some see this as a sign that Japan has finally turned the corner and the so-called lost decades of the Japanese economy are finally over. Warren Buffett recently said that his investment company Berkshire Hathaway would raise its holdings in Japanese companies and foreign purchases have risen to their highest level since 2017. With the ending of deflation and the return of animal spirits, the hope among Japan watchers is that investors will start to buy Japanese stocks attracted by their relatively low valuations compared to other international markets. So to discuss all this, we're joined by Alex Kinmont, who's a Japanese expert. He's also CEO of Milestone Asset Management in Tokyo, and he's followed the ups and downs of the Nikkei for several decades. He's kindly joined us today to talk through recent events and give us a sense of whether Japan has indeed finally turned a corner. Welcome, Alex. Good morning. I suppose we should start really by just trying to take take the temperature of where we got to. We've seen lots of rallies in Japanese stocks before, but they've generally petered out before they've really got going. Has anything really changed this time? A slightly unsatisfactory answer, but yes and no. <laughs> You'll have to elaborate. <laughs> what has changed is the external environment, which has turned the market being more supportive of Japanese assets over the past two to three years than at any point during the previous 20 or 30. The decisive shift for the better actually occurred in 2011 with the second coming of Prime Minister Abe, who inaugurated a policy of maxi devaluation of the currency. That policy of maxi devaluation brought to an end a period of 30 years during which the yen was systematically overvalued relative to all other major currencies and thus constituted a deadweight anchor cast over the back of the ship restraining the growth of the economy. We're now in the second stage of the improvement consequent upon the removal of that constraint. And that has included, a, again, a maxi devaluation of the currency. That's what's changed for the, for the better. Much less has changed in terms of so-called corporate governance, so-called reform and other hobby horses of foreign investors. You view them as hobby horses in a slightly uh, derogatory way. Do you think that... Uh, they are not helpful in terms of encouraging higher valuations on shares. An unchanged corporate governance system in Japan has been consistent with every share price between 12,000 and 39,000. So it's hard to string a connection between the form that corporate governance, governance takes and valuation of shares. At base, the um, call for reform for Japan is a misdiagnosis of the problem. The problem has not been the form that corporate governance takes or the social structure of the labour market or anything of that kind. The problem has been premature tightening on every occasion that the economy has shown any sign of life. The, the villains of the piece are the Ministry of Finance and the Bank of Japan with subsidiary contributions from the politicians and not 
the average worker, the average manager, and so on, who are usually the focus of blame in all of these so-called reform-centered diagnoses. A little bit of historical color. The transformation of the wartime economy was accomplished under the banner of reform. The Second World War we're talking about here. That's right. The word reform is a complicated one in Japanese. It's full of allusions to the 1930s and 1940s. But the uh, last great use of the word kakshin, reform, was by the so-called kakshin kanryo, the um, reform bureaucrats of the late 1930s, early 1940s, who militarized and reformed the Japanese economy. And the, the fact is that reform to Japanese means top-down dirigist intervention in the economy does not mean free market activity in a Thatcherite or a Reaganite sense. But do you think that reform of these, of the corporate governance sort of thing Neil was talking about, is necessary? Or, or, or are you saying it's just a red herring? Or are you just saying that it doesn't appeal to Japanese people where they hear the word reform? It's largely a red herring. Okay. Japanese ruling class talking down to the population. I see. We've talked about the big change, which is that yen has devalued. Are there other things that are going on? I mean, one question is whether the Japanese government is willing to spend more money, to be more fiscally expansionary than they have been for the past few decades. What's your view there, Alex? I don't think any major change in government psychology has occurred. But the circumstances in which the government finds itself have changed utterly with the more assertive China that has appeared over the past five to ten years. This year's budget requests, for instance, include in the context of 100 trillion yen's worth of genuine expenditure, 4 trillion yen of additional military expenditure. It's unclear as to whether the expenditure is being sought on a pre-funded basis for spending in subsequent years. But that alone has changed the budget stance from neutral over a, on a year-over-year basis to expansionary. So the days in which the Japanese government could, in a Taliban-esque display of fiscal probity, <laughs> engage in a policy of fiscal restraint have, uh, have come to an end. And the markets picked that up. One can quibble with the style of the market's recovery, notably in the, fo- the fact that uh, the leading part is being played by index funds and uh, foreign CTAs. What are CTAs? Commodity Trading Advisor. Okay. Fast money, not investors, but traders. Okay. They tend to buy index heavy stocks, which has flattered the indices relative to the average stock. Could I just ask a sort of rather silly, naive question? The Japanese authorities are forever claiming that they're trying to encourage inflation and inflation stubbornly refuses to arrive. They've been doing this for years and years. When we had the prospect of inflation, it took about 20 minutes for it to arrive. This is something that I'm sure there's a perfectly reasonable explanation for, but I must say it baffles me that they can't get it and we can't get rid of it. (laughs) This engages questions of economic ideology, which get very complicated indeed. The, the fact is that the supply side of the economy in Japan is too big relative to the current level of domestic demand. And the current level of domestic demand is low because the government has continually removed demand from the economy through fiscal tightening at inappropriate moments. And that's what stopped. The nub of the problem in Japan is that the Japanese worker 
doesn't have any additional capital relative to 20 years ago to earn his living. And that's because there's been no net investment for the thick end of 20 years. So while, while capital is a value and capital is a physical commodity, they're not the same. In a manner of speaking, the Japanese worker has the same tool bag as he had 20 years ago. And that's without parallel in the developed world. And this brings us back to the currency. The currency was artificially inflated in the form of the Plaza Agreement in 1985 in order to damage Japanese industry, because damaging Japanese industry was the policy of the United States at the time. And it took 30 years for that policy to be reversed. So Britain can have inflation very quickly because the level of demand in the economy is already close to or perhaps exceeding the level of supply in the economy. But Japan has not invested a cent for the last 20 years. Um, and consequently, the demand side of the economy is depressed relative to the supply side of the economy. Which seems very strange to me yeah. because I think you could make the same criticism of the UK that investment over the last 20 years has been lamentable, uh, certainly much less than our European neighbours. We also have a similar problem in terms of the ageing population. Yet what is happening seems to be almost the complete reverse. Can I ask you one question? You've obviously been following this for many years. What is it that animates the policymakers in Japan to pursue such a perverse set of policies that has caused such damage? It's only perverse if you think that the purpose of government is the growth of the economy. And the growth of the economy is a small-scale factor in the cogitations of the average bureaucrat. What are they thinking about? They're thinking about maintaining their own control. You'd have thought that uh, a politician getting into power, one of the reasons why you would do so is to spend other people's money. It sounds <laughs> to me as though the Japanese don't like to do that. The political class is essentially overlapping with the higher echelons of the corporate sector, listed companies, for instance. And they have bourgeois prejudices against public sector spending. We could do a few of those here, I think. <laughs> I have to say, I plead guilty as charged. I've been a, a bull of Japan for, for 15 years without very much success. Join the club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons why is, of course, the idea that valuations and, uh, of stocks in Japan have been, by international standards, relatively low for a long time. I mean, is that the right way to look at it, Alex? Very much so, yes. Right. But the problem with valuation... Yeah, is that stocks can, can, in Keynes's words, can stay cheap longer than you can stay solvent. Mm. So one of the reasons that we've structured our fund not to use leverage, even though the fundamentals of the situation would justify using leverage, is precisely the ability to outlast market downturns. And I think that's where a number of Japanese value strategies have come unhinged in the past. Paradoxically, not as conservatively structured as the balance sheets of the firms in which they invest. Mm. The valuation environment is extremely supportive of current share prices and would be supportive of almost all cases a doubling of the current share price. So you're at the average stock in your portfolio is half the price you think it's worth? Roughly speaking, yes. <laughs> well, it's a good, it's a good line. <laughs> Our portfolio carries an EV bidar of four for net cash businesses conservatively financed without large capital expenditure needs, sells for eight and a half times earnings, less than one times book, has an ROE, a return on invested capital of eight and a cost of capital of six and a half. <laughs> different people have different views of what investing is about. 
but mine is very much a question of trying to manhandle mathematics onto one side. <laughs> well, those sort of numbers make uh, yeah, even the well. UK market look overvalued, yeah, yeah. let alone that elsewhere. And what's, what's amazing is that a lot of the we're heavily biased towards engineering and manufacturing. What's amazing is that we have a number of companies with world-leading market shares that because they're hidden away in the corners of the Japanese, darkest corners of the Japanese market, don't achieve valuation such as they would achieve in other jurisdictions. So what sort of catalyst would make the, the world change its view of stocks like this and Japan generally? The first thing which we as non-US investors should always recognize is that as long as the, the, the American investor is interested in America, they're not interested in the rest of the world. So we would require a bear market in the United States or a dull phase in the United States to have a lasting move in, in, in Japan. The Japanese environment would require a consistent period of, of non-anti-growth. Non-anti-growth. Uh, do you think that's likely? Do you think that, do you, I mean, they tried it with Arbenomics, but do you think that there will ever be a change of heart? And, and if so, what would cause it? There could be a change of heart, but we should be properly aware of how rare the changes in part of the Japanese administration have actually been. The period of 1950 to 1973 was one period during which fiscal policy was genuinely expansionary. And amazingly enough, the Japanese economy was, performed an economic miracle. The period 1974 on to 1990 was mixed. From 1990, the bias of public policy has been contractionary with some interruptions for emergency spending. But now we've arrived at a situation where China is threatening daily and the ability to cut expenditure is going to be extremely limited. They've already cut public work expenditure nearly in half compared with its peak in 1996. So the room for further cuts in the rest of the budget is limited and the demands for expansion of the military budget is pressing. So whatever the Ministry of Finance thinks, they're not going to be in a position to tighten fiscal policy as dramatically or for as long as they would wish. So Japan might recover in spite of itself. Is that the best hope for us Japan watchers? It's not the best hope. It's the re the re a realistic appraisal of the situation. One has to take a step back and acknowledge the overall the overriding importance of, of American policy as manifested in the Plaza Agreement. There was a policy deliberately to damage Japanese industry, and that policy lasted for the best, best part of 30 years, and now that's gone, and we should expect different results. Can I get back to the just to where we started, which is two questions really connected. One is, we have seen an upturn in the market. What do you think is the most likely thing to kill it? And secondly, what percentage chance would you give of it continuing and Japan not lapsing back into the stop-start problems that you've talked about? We'll take the second half first. I've been telling clients and friends that we're going to end the year 30% higher than we started it. Oh, sounds all right. And we're not going to know why. We're not going to be able to simplistically say this was the reason that stocks move. Stocks will move because they've sensed that something has shifted. That's my basic pres presumption about the market, right. figuratively. The risks to the market are clearly, uh, first of all, an American downturn, with a serious downturn in the United States, the probabilities of which appear to change daily, would be a significant impediment for, for the export-heavy sectors of the Japanese market and probably would result in a, a downturn. And the second source of risk for the market is policy. That Mr. Ueda 
could be maneuvered by the Bank of Japan's version of the Taliban into a premature tightening. And uh, that could happen, as it has had on the occasion since 2000, when they tried it, 2000, 2006, 2011. They could abort the recovery all over again. But they're pushing against the wind now, which is a different um, environment from that which confronted them in the middle 1990s and the late 2010s. Okay, but come back to my question. It's the question of whether it's different this time. Do you have a sort of uh, percentage chance that you think it is different? 75. 75% chance of it being different. Yes. Oh. Well, that's interesting. Well, it's certainly uh, that would at least justify what has happened so far this year in terms of uh, in terms of the market. But you're saying we're sort of only halfway to the gain that you are anticipating for the calendar year. Have I got that right? That's right. And we're halfway in terms of the index and halfway also in terms of the spread of the shares that have gone up. The current market is rather narrow, led by index-heavy components. And that's because it's the buying is the buying of indices by CTAs, as I mentioned before. The traders, yeah. Not so much buyers of individual stocks. And there's an established pattern whereby in any serious rally, one starts with a, a small earthquake in um, individual stocks, of the kind that we love, small value, niche engineering, that sort of thing. And they suddenly recover their animal spirits for reasons that remain opaque many years after the, uh, the fact that they've done it. And that's stage one. Then they're followed by the CTAs, leading the index players into, into, into the market. And then at a lag of about six months from the initial start of the, of the, of the move, the broad mass of shares start to gain. And it's only when you get a return to the index-heavy shares that you can feel the cycle becoming a little long in the tooth. We're nowhere near that. Very good. So I'm partly encouraged by this. Yeah, Still well. a little bit anxious that no one knows, seems to really, really know what's going on. But apart from, um, obviously, Alex knows much more than we do. But People have argued themselves into a false consciousness, to use a Marxist term. The dominance of a particular kind of economics leads to uh, overemphasis on reform and crude measures of productivity mm. that don't take into account the, uh, the complexities of measuring capital. So there's a small industry in Japan of people telling us the total fact of productivity can't rise, that uh, labor productivity can't rise. Therefore, the whole growth of the economy the support for the whole growth of the economy is thrown back on an exogenously given birth rate or labor, labor, labor growth rate. Mm. It's all consistent if one accepts the basic ideology of neoclassical economics. It's all complete nonsense if you don't accept the ideology of neoclassical economics and instead look to Cambridge Keynesianism for your analysis. Oh, well, there's reasons to be cheerful, I suppose, if, you, uh, <laughs> if you're... Uh... Uh, looking to diversify from the rather grim Western European sclerotic economies, Japan looks like an attractive alternative. Japan is basically good at making things in a, in a very fundamental way, uh, a way that Britain was once good at making things, but things rather changed in the UK. Is there a threat to that from uh, other Far Eastern countries where... Obviously, labour costs are much lower that we've all heard about and that uh, they are learning how to make things. Or do you think that Japan is uh, so far ahead on that that it's not a threat? Japanese quality is, un is just in a different league. There's a very great effort to tie in Bangladesh and Vietnam and 
basis in Japanese orbit to do the low-end areas of manufacturing. And to some extent, that's been successful. And there's a move to withdraw from China. The great bellwether of these industries, of course, Toyota. Toyota is never convinced by China, so it's easy for Toyota to withdraw. It's less easy for Nissan, for instance. But the um, de-emphasis of China, de-emphasizing China is one string of this. But the other is a division of labor between Southeast Asia, certain countries within Southeast Asia rather than every country in Southeast Asia, and Japan. And Japan, craft manufacture in, in Japan is just a sensationally high quality compared with any other country in the world. It's, it's almost a joke. I think, I, I think I've learned a bit more from my depths of abysmal depths <laughs> of ignorance. That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Production and editing by Nick Hilton. And our sponsorship partner is Briefcase.News. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app, as that will help new listeners find us.